Anybody want to say who's favorite characters? Homer is classic, yeah. Sorry? Bart, I mean, I have a soft spot for Bart, obviously. Yeah. Marge. Yeah, she's quality, isn't she? That's true. Is there anyone else? Lisa. Lisa is very sweet, yeah. Ned Flanders. We love Ned. Ned is, yeah. Anybody like Mr. Burns? The wealthy miser. It's just this great, um, uh, this great couple of lines from uh, a, a, an episode in The Simpsons where, unusually, Homer and Mr. Burns are having a beer together. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. And Homer says to him, I don't know if I can do the accents really, but you know, Mr. Burns, you're the richest guy I know, even richer than Lenny. And Mr. Burns says, yes, but I trade it all for more. Do you know that one? Is that quite good? <laughs> top, top impressions this afternoon. Anyway, Mr. Burns says, yeah, but I trade it all for more. I trade it all for more. So keep that, keep that little quote in mind as we look at this passage. And I would really like us to look at the passage. So if you've got a Bible next to you or near you on the pew, look for uh, Luke 18, verse 18 onwards. Um, cause, uh, and uh, maybe um, Josh or Steve, if, you can, if I refer to a verse, you can whack it up there. That would be really helpful because I'm just going to properly look at this story for a few moments. So, Luke 18, verse 18, uh, the story of a ruler. So, in a life of following Jesus, if we are listening to him, he regularly takes the opportunity to invite us into greater obedience and therefore greater abundance. I'll just say that again. In a life of following Jesus, if we are listening to him, he regularly takes the opportunity to invite us into greater obedience and therefore greater abundance. Now, following Jesus essentially means doing what he says, doing what he does, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, becoming like him as you do those things. And these invitations to greater obedience are always a little bit painful and a bit awkward, uh, as particularly as Western individuals, we are somewhat pre-programmed to respond to any invitation to obedience with no one gets me, no one gets to tell me how to live my life. And if you were here last week, you'll have heard Sam talk about the process by which she grew in obedience uh, to God with regards to money. Uh, because she had had a massive setback when she was young, when her parents' house was repossessed, that scarred her with her relationship with money. And so it took a long time working with the Lord and finally coming to the conclusion, going, yes, I am going to obey you, Jesus, because I believe that you have your, my best interests at heart and that you are entirely good. And so if you say something, uh, even though it's contrary to my uh, feelings and my emotions, I'm going to step into it because I believe you're going to bring abundance, which he did. And, uh, and you may well have stories along these lines as well from your own life. For me, from time to time, I know that Jesus invites me to make more time in my life to pray, for instance. And when I respond well to this invitation, the outcome is always very joyful and very fulfilling. And I always think to myself, why on earth didn't I listen to the Lord earlier? Because this is great. So in this story, Jesus invites a member of the ruling class so he's got it sorted in terms of um, 
who he is in society. And Jesus invites him to greater obedience and also greater abundance. And to be, as we have been calling it, to be all in. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. So verse 18, Luke 18, verse 18. A member of the ruling classes asks a good question to Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's looking for something to do by which he will take hold of the life of, the, life of heaven, the life of the world to come, the age to come, if you like. Matthew, when he writes about this incident, and it obviously was a popular incident because it's in three of the Gospels, Matthew says this ruler is a young man. So he's really made it early in life. And we learn only later in this story that also this man is extremely wealthy. So he's young, he's very rich, and he's in charge. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think the question is sincere. He flatters Jesus by coming up to him and saying, good teacher, which Jesus somewhat backs away. Um, so perhaps there is a touch of complacency here, but I think it's a genuine inquiry because later on you find out he's sad when he can't make his way towards what he wants. Verse 20, so skip on to verse 20. Jesus answers the question that the man puts to him about what he must do. And he says, well, you must do these things. In fact, uh, he lists five of the Ten Commandments, which you can find in Exodus chapter 20. And he lists the most, most of the relational commandments, so the commandments that are about how to get on with one another, how to love your neighbor, or at least how not to annoy them. So do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, and honor your father and mother. And he leaves out the commandments about how to relate to God. So he's literally just talking about how to relate to other people, how to, how to do that well. And this is a fairly comfortable answer for him since the guy has been obedient to these five commandments since he was a kid. And I think you can be sure that he has pretty much done that or done it as well as uh, a human being possibly can. That's not really contested. But it won't have escaped the young man's notice that Jesus doesn't highlight um, the Tenth Commandment, which is also a relational command. So he leaves that one out, which is, anyone know Tenth Commandment? Yeah, do not covet. So do not envy, do not set your heart on things that belong to other people. It's a subtle alert of the awkward thing that Jesus is about to invite him into. And uh, I think because, um, as Bob told us before, you know, uh, young Jewish people will have really learned a lot of the scriptures. And if they hadn't learned the Ten Commandments, they were going nowhere. So they would know that Jesus is not mentioned, do not covet. Verse 22, hop on to verse 22. So Jesus then replies and says something to him, which is a bit like throwing a bucket of ice water over him. He says, look, you still lack one thing. The thing you lack is this, sell all you have, distribute the proceeds to the poor, and come and follow me. And then within that extraordinary request that Jesus makes, is there, there is a promise. He says, then you will have treasure in heaven. So he's got treasure on earth, but Jesus is offering him treasure in heaven. He's saying essentially, give up your riches and I will give you mine. Give up your riches for mine, but you can't have both. 
So Jesus correctly diagnoses in this man the one thing which is blocking his ability to obey the first commandment, which is the most important one, the one from which all the other ones flow and all the relational ones flow. The first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus is looking at him and he knows, in, he knows what is um, blocking him in his relationship with God, he knows what is coming between God and him and, uh, and is holding him back from abundance. So here's the invitation that Jesus makes to this ruler to be all in with the promise of treasures in heaven, heaven being God's dimension, heaven not being up there or later, but heaven being the dimension of God around you all the time in the, in the here and now, as well as in the future. And to trust that God would give him, uh, that, that what God would give him would always be greater than anything that he could get or earn for himself. That's the trust issue. Is the stuff that he has now less than something that God could give him now and in the future. And so, uh, it doesn't say this, but you, between verse 22 and 23, you get the sense that this ruler does a cost-benefit analysis and weighs up the sense of, is, is, is this treasure that I have earned that is mine, if I, if I sell all that and get rid of it, will I really obtain heavenly treasure? Will I really do that? And he comes to the conclusion, unusually, because when Jesus meets people, usually there is like a severe transformation. But here he comes to the conclusion, no, it's not going to happen. And he becomes very sad, it says in verse 23, he becomes very sad because he is extremely wealthy. There's no way that he is going to go that far, I guess. Unlike Zacchaeus in the next chapter, who you heard about last week, who in the transformative meeting with Jesus, decides to give away half of everything that he, has, uh, that he has earned, both legally and illegally. He gives at least half of it back, which would cause him, I imagine, to lay off a whole bunch of staff and to sell his house. And I imagine his family were not best pleased. So he's unable to rise to Jesus' challenge in the moment. And he would like to really be able to have both treasures on earth and heavenly treasures at the same time. But Jesus looks at him and says, no, you have to choose. Because of where you are at and what blocks you from God, you do need to choose. And I think this ruler kind of has an approach to life, which is a bit like a water going around a rock. So where there is a big problem, he'd like to flow around it. But Jesus says, no, you have to remove the rock. Some of you may know Jordan Seng, who's a pastor in Hawaii, and he did some stuff with us at New Wine uh, at various points. He wrote a great book called Miracle Work. If you want to learn how to grow in operating in the power of the Spirit, that is the best book I've ever read on that. Um, Jordan wrote this about how to grow in spiritual power. And he says one way to do that is what he calls consecration. How we dedicate ourselves to the things of God through specific sacrificial acts. He says the power of heaven flows best through places the kingdom of heaven has already thoroughly conquered. Where heaven has an unhindered right of way, if you like. So stuff, money, and possessions can easily clutter up our soul. 
And we trust them rather than God to look after us. And so what an act of consecration does uh, is, is, a, is a costly action, if you like, so that heaven gains space in us. But for heaven to gain space in us, the world must lose. Something in our lives must lose, he says. So an act of consecration is what Jesus is inviting this ruler into. And the man is sad because he, he's not going to go there. Verse 24, here we go. So this sort of moves on to Jesus widening the conversation to some others who seem to be listening in on the conversation, including Peter, as we'll see at the end. So Jesus widens the subject. And it's almost like he looks at the man because the man's, I guess the man's face falls when Jesus says this because it's a pretty dramatic statement to say to him, sell all you have, give it away, and come and follow me. And he looks at the man, and it's almost like he's reading his face, and he muses and marvels on the power of riches to block going deeper with God. And he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he cracks the famous joke about that it's harder for a camel, the largest land animal at the time, to go through the eye of a needle, obviously a very small opening, um, and, uh, than for those who have wealth to get into the kingdom of God. I think it is a joke. I mean, uh, you know, it's a joke from 2,000 years ago, so we can kind of relax with it. The affluent, he says, have the constant temptation to rely on things other than God and his mercy and his grace. And we in this room, globally, are affluent by and large and so when we read this story it is important to put ourselves in the place of the ruler uncomfortable though that may be but this story is included in the scriptures in order to make us uncomfortable and it does so while there is no general requirement in the christian faith and in the scriptures to give up all our possessions christ does call us to get rid of anything which takes up God's space in our lives. What the first commandment calls idolatry, putting other things first other than God. And rich people trust all kinds of riches. It's just what riches do to us. They say, place your trust in me. Place it. You know, if you have more, then you'll be settled. You'll be all right. So stuff like money and possessions, but also riches like intellectual capacity or skill or good reputation, or brilliant networks of families and friends. All these things are really good things. They are blessings from the Lord. They really are. But they have an, a habit, and some of them really have an inherent power, and they're always grasping to try and uh, block out the light which comes from God, I guess. And the Bible makes clear that money is not inherently evil at all, but the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. Jesus mentions this stuff elsewhere. It's a really important subject to Jesus, um, particularly money because it is so powerful, but all other kinds of things as well. So if you remember the parable of the sower, where Jesus talks about a farmer throwing seed and planting seed, and in one of the scenarios, all kinds of thorns grow up with the wheat, with, uh, with, the, with the produce. And the thorns choke 
the wheat. And it's a, he says the, the, the thorns are the cares of the world, so things that we worry about, the deceitfulness of wealth, so that, meaning that wealth says to us, oh, you can trust me, you can trust me. And that's not true. And the desires for other things, just wanting stuff. Those are the thorns that grow up. And, and it's a really accurate diagnosis of our condition, I would say. So Jesus is musing and marveling about this, how difficult it is for uh, the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples listening are astonished. They're really astonished by this whole transaction that's gone on here. And uh, they say to him, well, who then can be saved? Because uh, particularly in those days, you know, someone who had extreme wealth was obviously phenomenally blessed by God. That, you know, God, they had God's approval. And he said, well, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of God, who can? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, obviously everyone needs the grace and mercy of God. So no one, in a sense, can be saved by their own abilities and their own merit and that kind of thing. But what is, what is impossible for human beings is possible for God because he brings his grace and mercy and enables anyone in any condition to be saved. And then Peter says this. This is verse 28, so we're heading towards the wrap-up now. Peter says, it's kind of been following the exchange that's been going on, and he makes the point that the disciples, unlike this ruler, have responded sacrificially to Jesus' call. They really have. And he says, see, we have left our homes, Jesus, to follow you. We've left our stuff. So the Greek word for homes here is idios or, or idia in the plural. And uh, so Peter is saying, we've left our idia to follow you, which is stuff that's uniquely our own. It's, it's stuff that's mine. And that could be property, or it could be your people, or your family, or your home, or even your country or your nation. You've, this is stuff that uniquely belongs to you. And, G, and he says, look, we have left all this stuff for you. And the implication is, so what's in it for us? What have you got? What's the heavenly riches that you've got? Because we need to know. We really need to know. Verse 29. Jesus makes this extraordinary promise. And it starts with, in the old version, verily, verily, I say to you. So what that means is pay attention because I'm telling you something really important. When Jesus says truly, truly, or verily, verily, or in the Greek, it's amen, amen, I say to you. He says this, look, whoever has left, he says this, whoever has left house, wife, brothers, parents, children for the kingdom of God they will receive many times more now and in the future. Much more now and in the future. What? This is a really weird saying, don't you think? If you really look at it, who's going to leave? Their, or maybe one or two people might leave their house for the kingdom of God. Who's going to leave their wife for the kingdom of God? Just leave that out there. Who's going to, you know, who's going to leave their brothers, their sisters? I mean, who's going to leave their children for the kingdom of God? What is Jesus saying here? Because it's extremely uh, weird. So, I'll see if I can explain. So, 
From time to time, Jesus asks us, as I've been saying, for an act of consecration, getting rid of things in our lives which block our life with God. And as we do this, when we do these things, we respond positively, unlike the ruler. When we respond positively, we strengthen ourselves for those times when stuff is taken away from us because we're followers of Jesus. So you can consecrate voluntarily, and from time to time you may have to consecrate involuntarily. And some of you will remember Steve Backhouse, who was a theologian who spent some time with us. And he made the comment that the Bible, when you, when you can't really understand what the Bible's saying, and something that Jesus says is, seems really weird, as it does here, He's, he reminds us that the Bible is always written what he calls from below. So it's written for those who are persecuted. It's written for those who are in difficulty and trouble. It's not written primarily for the ruler. And it's not written for the affluent. It's written from below. And for some, when God comes into your life and transforms you, you may inadvertently lose a lot. And earlier, I think we were, um, Joe was mentioning about Christians across the world who suffer enormous amounts of persecution for their faith. And I was just reading yesterday from Open Doors, who we support, the story of Yashim, who's 25 years old, he's from Bangladesh, and two weeks ago, family members, get this, family members started physically attacking him, trying to force him to renounce his faith in Christ, which he refused. This angered a wider group of people. Sixty people came and started attacking him and beat him, but he miraculously managed to escape. He returned home, and then the police turned up, and the police blamed him for people attacking him. And then a a bigger crowd came along and stabbed him and beat him uh, even more violently than before, but he managed to get away again. And he's recovering slowly, but his faith in Christ, extraordinarily, has really grown and blossomed. And Open Doors are asking that we would pray for, his, pray for him, for his recovery, and for his attackers, that they will come to know Christ through his witness. So I think what Jesus is referring to is sometimes this stuff gets taken from you. And we don't have vast amounts of experience of that in this country. But he's saying, like to Yashim, uh, you have, you know, you, you lost family and, and health and all kinds of things. And how much more you will receive heavenly treasures now and in the future. That's the recompense that Peter's looking for. So, summing up. Following Jesus eventually costs us everything, doesn't it? And of course it would. Of course it would. It's the greatest thing in the world to follow Christ. There's nothing finer. So it's never going to be like a cinch. And he asks us to be all in and to trust him first above everything and above everyone. To get rid of aspects of our lives which disable us from following him fully and freely. And in return, we get the treasures and riches of heaven. In this life and the next, we get a relationship of extraordinary love and intimacy with the living God himself. He gives us hope for despair. He gives us joy for sadness. He gives us peace and wholeness in the middle of fracture and fragility. 
He gives us forgiveness, lifting from us guilt and shame. He gives us new identity as a beloved son and daughter of the living God. And it cost Jesus everything on the cross to win this for us. And entering into the fullness of what God has for you and for me costs us too. It does. Not that we earn it. We really don't. But that we make space to embrace more of God's grace in our lives. And that's, what, that's the request that Jesus makes the ruler. Make space in your life for more abundance. That's the invitation. The only thing to the guy, for the guy is it just doesn't feel like that. But that's the trust issue. What are you going to trust? Or who are you going to trust? So when you come back to Homer and Mr. Burns, Mr. Burns inadvertently says something theologically very true, which is I'd give it all up for more. That's, that's, that's what um, Jesus is offering. He says, give it all up, have more. I'd give it all up for more. Why don't we pray for a few moments? Because I think the Holy Spirit's going to just do some stuff with, our, with us as individuals in our hearts. But should we stand together? So I just felt very strongly that we're just, it's just good after reading a sort of bludgeoning reading like that to remind ourselves of the vision of what God is offering, that actually God is offering more than anything that we can bring and earn ourselves. And it's so against the grain. Honestly, it really is. And it's a supernatural act. So I'm just going to I'm going to pray and I just want if you want to join me in this prayer it's just inviting Jesus to ask us what kind of act of consecration we we might want to make at this point That's all And it's a re, it's a daring prayer honestly because if you decide to follow up anything Jesus asks of you it will be costly but you'll give it all up for more that's the promise. So if you want to pray with me, do. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the wisdom that he brings into life with you and human life. But Holy Spirit, we present ourselves to you Help us to trust in your goodness, in your riches, and in your reward. But we offer you ourselves, our lives, our relationships, our stuff, all that we are and all that we have. We just bring it into the light and into, uh, and into the middle between you and me. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that 
you would speak with us now, speak to our hearts and our minds. If there is a particular act of consecration, to give something up for more, that you're asking us today, that you would tell it to us now, we pray. And some of you may be unused to hearing the voice of God. Usually doesn't come as a big boom, but just as a, a, you just get reminded of something, or you something comes to mind. And if something does, say to the Lord, Lord, is that it? Is that what you're saying to me today? And have a conversation with him. So, Father, we thank you for your invitation, and we pray that by the Holy Spirit you would help us now, help us to take a first step with you, whatever that might be. Help us to walk with you this week and see your abundance, experience your love and your hope and your joy and your closeness. We step into that in the name of Jesus. Amen.